so thank you. Thank you very much for coming out this evening, and thank you, virtual audience, for joining us. Our author tonight is Kemper Donovan with his wonderful new book, The Busy Buddy, but we have, an, we have a bonus in that Mike Lawson has come by and signed copies of his 17th Joe DeMurco thriller. Sorry, Kingpin. I keep wanting to put a the in front of it, but Kingpin. <laughs> and I have to say that on Washington Inside Thriller, I mean, do you feel do you feel like current events may be shading out the fiction that you're writing? Do like you have to use the microphone? I feel like you can't write some of the stuff that's going on right now that people wouldn't think it was realistic. So it's, you're, it's it's you're <laughs> so right. I mean, nobody <laughs> could make the kind of shit up that's actually going on. <laughs> it's so true. But, um, you know, I, I do think the concept of a fixer is a really interesting one. I think the British, you probably know this, Kemper, don't they call him a bagman? I get that from watching yeah. Morrison Endeavor. Yes. You know, not that I actually know a lot about <laughs> British policing, but I'm pretty sure <laughs> that they call such a guy a bagman, and you you two probably don't know about it, but the recent revelations about Carrie Lake um, indicate that there may have been a fixer um, who, I mean, the whole thing is inexplicable from start to finish about why she sat on a recording for 10 months and why anybody tried to bribe her to oh, quit, yes. if in fact that's true, because, you know, it's certainly possible that <laughs> even that's <laughs> fiction here. But if if it was if it is true, then it could have been a bagman. That's what my guy is. Yep, bagman. Right. Exactly. <laughs> All right. So so in your book, as I remember it, there is a young man who is ruled a suicide, but neither Joe nor the guy that he works for, the powerful yes. representative, um, believe that that's true. Yes, that's basically the the book. A, a page, uh, an intern working for the Speaker of the House, Mahoney, he dies. It, it looks like a suicide. Nobody believes it. And you start pulling the string, and uh, it looks like maybe this intern knows something about a few congressmen being bribed, as, as unlikely oh, no. as that may be. Wow, it could have been yeah. a senator. <laughs> <laughs> is it Menendez? Why is that man still in it? I mean, honestly, you just can't... <laughs> Just can't believe any of it. But um, and what I found really interesting is that it's the private investigator that is hired who ends up. If I remember this right, doesn't he end up being murdered? Uh, no. No. Not, not in this. All right. Case. No. I the, thought. Uh, well, what happens? Because I thought there was somebody. I'm sorry. I yeah, there's somebody. a in this book. There's somebody else that's following my fixer guy around, and and he ends up getting right. Okay, uh, but he isn't a PI. Yeah, he was. Yeah. He is a PI. Yeah. All right, so I am right. Right, right. so there's a private investigator following around, and he ends up, which is sort of unusual because normally the private investigator is mm. the guy doing the detecting and not the murder victim, but <laughs> there we are. So, you know, 17 books about insider Washington. Um, how do you keep your enthusiasm up? You know, that's not, I mean, I enjoy what I do. It's not like it's a real job. And so it, <laughs> I mean, you know, you, you get up and you, you know, you, you hear about something and it just becomes, you know, the idea for the next book. Uh, the one that's it's back with my agent right now, it involves the National Archives. You know, I mean, wh where could that idea have come from? You know, the <laughs> presidential papers ended up in the National Archives and something looks wacky about them. I mean, so it's just, you know, you can just. Yeah, you just, just have to read the newspaper. No, yeah, blogs, it's really, right? you don't even have I to know. pay close attention. Maybe but, you should uh, just cut and paste in the New York Times. <laughs> go from yeah, there. So it's, it's, it's not hard <laughs> to find a plot for the next book. And like I say, for me, it's it's it's, it's not like a real job. Like, like 
me and a gentleman there, we used to work in a shipyard where we actually had real jobs. I mean, this is just, you know, I get up in the morning and I write for a few hours and I go play golf. And so it's, it's uh, I enjoy it. Well, I'm really, I'm really glad that you do. My hope, actually, and this is pretty scary considering how old I am, but if I, if I can live another 10 years, I really want to know what people are going to say and write about the mess that we have been in. You know, history, I don't think, is going to be kind to any of these people. But, you know, so. living through it is, is really, I think, unnerving. Which brings me to Kemper Donovan, who <laughs> provides this respite. If any of you read our publications, you will know that we decided that our mission for 2024 was to eschew politics and all other divisive, I just having done that, um, divisive subjects. And we are here for respite, entertainment, and... I think, and one of the great bonuses of mostly crime fiction and some other, is you get to learn really cool stuff. I've always loved mystery for that, that, you know, you get to learn all kinds of interesting things, medical, you know, legal, whatever it is. Mm -hmm. So I meant to introduce Kemper, and I want him to talk about it. He is the podcaster for the All About Agatha podcast, meaning he's an authority on Agatha Christie. Indeed, yes, I, I've been doing it for uh, seven years, and I always just do have to mention up front because the podcast started uh, very much as a joint endeavor. I created it with a good friend of mine named Catherine Brobeck, and she passed away at the end of 2021. I'm so, sorry. Yeah, so I've been doing it alone now for two years, so it's a very different sort of a thing, and what also bifurcated it was not only Catherine's passing, but uh, we started the podcast with the project, the insane project of ranking all 66 of Agatha Christie's full-length mystery novels. So we divided each novel into five, really six different categories. We assigned scores to those categories. We tabulated the results, and we now have a master grid uh, ranking all 66 of those books. And we were six away from finishing that ranking project when Catherine passed away. So I was actually able to finish the project with friends that we had made, other Christie uh, scholars and experts, even Sophie Hanna, uh, you know, who writes the uh, Poirot novels and is, is, of course, also a mystery novelist. Uh, she did one episode. Um, and after that, I've now just continued to not shut up about Agatha Christie. That's become sort of the the defining ethos of, of the podcast after the project was over. And so far, so good, because I, I have not run out of any any material because there's always something new where Christie is concerned or always some different aspect of Christie to be discussed or, or delighted in. And I very much was inspired by Christie, of course. How could I not be uh, when I wrote my own mystery novel? Or indeed. So when you say ranking, I already want to know <coughs> who's sending the ranking. Who's, who's actually, do you say ranking, but on what basis is this? Feedback from readers is this? Oh, this is what just, is it? This is the opinion of myself and Catherine. Oh, so okay. we knew that this was an entirely subjective sort of a thing. Ah. We, but we, what we did is that we took an analytical approach and a holistic approach. So we we started chronologically with Christie's first published book, and we worked our way through all sixty six, and uh, we evaluated them in the same way, so that we could then evaluate them side by side. At the end of each year. We would do approximately 12 books a year, so approximately one a month. We started getting slower as time went on because I think we were getting weary. But uh, not, not that we weren't enjoying Christy, but it was, it was a lot. Um, so we, at the end of every year, we would sort of take a look at our rankings and see if anything seemed out of whack mm -hmm. and adjust. So 
this was always approached in a spirit of fun, knowing that it was so subjective and we were trying to inject a little bit of objectivity into it, but always with a wink. And so, you know. what what criteria did you use? So the the five category the five main categories were plot mechanics, plot credibility, series long characters, book specific characters, and then our last category was setting and tone, which had to do with how well Christie established tone as to both location and time. And by by tone, we mean sort of pacing and the overall feel of the book. That became a little bit of our catch-all category. Um, and then our final category, which was probably the most controversial, we ultimately called depictions stuck in their time. And that was accounting for the phenomenon of reading these books that are still in print over 100 years after they first were in print, which sometimes as to aspects of intimate human experience or identity, such as race, gender, sexual orientation, et cetera, uh, can be interesting or, or perhaps jarring in an unintended way. And the purpose of that category was never to judge Christie. I always say I should be so lucky, any author should be so lucky to be judged over 100 years after they published something because people were still interested in what they wrote. That's wonderful, good for her. Um, so it's never, it was never to judge Christie. It was just to account for the experience of reading Christie, what it's like to read a Christie novel now. And there's no denying that there are those moments sometimes when you, you, you read Christie and you come across a word or a sentence or an idea and, and it, it has an effect on the read. Yeah, but it's not just Christie. If you read any of them, Dorothy Sayers or, you know, any of the Golden Age. I mean, Absolutely. I've always wondered if anybody, you know, would actually try to take the simple art of murder. And, you know, there would only be probably 11 words left in the book because Chandler <laughs> was, you know. I mean, I it's ridiculous, yeah. you know, to judge authors um, outside of their own time. You know, we can't take our own sensibility and yeah. and it's that I am not a fan of these expurgated versions. Uh -huh. I'm really not... I'm uh, I am not entirely critical of them. I don't condemn them. I think that I think it's a complicated issue. I think the crucial issue, and not something that has been um, explained enough, and when it comes to Christie, is will the original, unedited, unexpurgated texts always be available? And that to me is is a crucial part of the overall issue. And if that is the case, then I think that changes the situation slightly. Um, but, and I know that as to Dahl, and I think there was something with the Ian Fleming estate that that question was answered very clearly. I'm not sure if that's the case. Well, it's happened to, to George Hare and some other authors too. And, yeah. you know, I'm, I, I want to go back, pardon me, I'm really digressing here. <laughs> I want to I go back to the Reverend Boulder, a Victorian um, clergyman who decided that he single-handedly would revise many texts and purge them of any offensive words for Vic to Victorians, which would have been different from offensive words for today. And his last name became a verb called boulderize. Mm -hmm. And the New York Times has at least twice done a crossword puzzle based entirely upon him and his work. And the main clue in it was, you know, the Reverend Boulder or however it was. So it's not the first time that, you know, an attempt has been made to um, conform literature to current sensibilities. Absolutely. And I say within the case of Christie, everyone got up in arms when, you know, this happened about a year ago when people realized that some of the, the Kindle editions, I think, had been changed and people weren't aware of it. But changes were made to Christie's text during her own lifetime. 
and then there were none the book and then there were none yes, everyone well, knows it has another title two others actually. two other titles right. yes um but that was always called and then there were none in the united states from the from the moment it was first printed in 1939 and christie was aware of that so not only was that a change in title by the way the word in the title is throughout the text so most people are okay with that change, for example. I, and I only bring that up because I think people like to make blanket statements about this is either okay or not. And I think it's hard to make a blanket statement about it because sometimes then you're, if that, in, in that case, if you're like, well, that sort of makes sense, then we're already building exceptions into this, into the, into the, the issue. So. Right, so that's our discussion of censorship. <laughs> I, having said that we weren't going to be doing that, but I do think it's an interesting question. And I agree with you that it's remarkable that we would even be discussing it a hundred years later, but then I think they're expurgated versions of Shakespeare, so it's been a lot Absolutely. more time for him. We'll see. And by the I just want to go on record as saying also Christie acquits herself extremely well when it comes to this issue. It's just that she's the one that most people are still reading. As you said, there are many other writers of the Golden Age that if you read deeply into where that that are much more eyebrow raising in that way. So I think that also sometimes gets lost in the conversation. It's just that we're not reading those authors as much. Well where I was originally I'm down here with three other guys playing golf and for <coughs> sorry. Whatever reason we decided to watch <coughs> Blazing Saddles last night. You talk about a movie that would never get made today, there's one that would, would fall in that category. <laughs> I'm sure you're right. True. So what is the, um, well, we're in the middle of, you know, a whole big discussion about book manning and other stuff. But let me ask you this before we talk about your book. In, in your discussion about plot and so forth, yeah. was originality one of, the, one of the standards? Because, I mean, one of the great things about Christie was the truly original, you know, groundbreaking ideas she had. She was, you know, the author of really the first unreliable narrator, for example. Yes, she was. I mean, it's interesting when you One do of the first. when you do a podcast about Agatha Christie and then uh, become known as someone who talks a lot about her. You start hearing from a lot of mystery scholars, and one of the most consistent comments I get sometimes is, "Well, technically, take any of Christie's big high concepts, and technically, you can find people who had done it earlier." But what I always say is, and I think most mystery scholars would even agree with this, is that Christie did it best often, even if she wasn't, and often didn't know about those earlier versions anyway. So it's not even the fact that it was something that made, that no one else had done, but boy, did she execute the heck out of the, uh, you know, the, the, the narrator did it, for, for example, and I won't say what title that is uh, in case I, I'm spoiling it for anyone. Um, so she had both the good ideas and she executed them really well. But yes, that would all go to plot mechanics. Uh, and um, yes, she often receives extremely high marks, of course, in that category. Are you an Agatha Christie reader? Oh yeah, in fact, I got the whole the whole set that's got all the stories in one set that I've, I, I've got. Yeah. Sixty? How many are there? Sixty-six. Sixty-six, 66 yeah. mystery novels. Okay, you're right. And then she wrote as Mary Westmacott and mm -hmm. other stuff. Mm -hmm. But anyway, we are here to talk about finally <laughs> um, the busybody and. One of the things that I, I enjoyed very much, well, aside from the style and the humor in it, which I think are great, um, there's been a, a number of books using Maine as the landscape. Hmm. And so what is your connection with Maine? Because this book really depends in part for its success on the fact that it's set in Maine. So um, my amateur detective character is a woman named Dorothy Gibson, who is a senator. She's a former senator from Maine. And the book is set in the direct aftermath of a very high-profile defeat of hers in a national 
uh, election, in a presidential election. There are very obvious parallels uh, to her career and the career of Hillary Clinton, but the Dorothy Gibson character was inspired by a number of female politicians, including uh, very specifically Margaret Chase Smith. Yeah who was uh, really such an interesting politician. So she, I think of her as one of the most successful cases of what uh, this phenomenon known as widow's mandate, uh, which happened a number of times earlier in the 20th century when a male politician would die and then his widow was called upon to finish out his term until a more suitable replacement could be found. And by suitable, they of course meant male. Um, but many of these women did not go away and they had uh, very successful political careers of their own. And uh, Margaret Chase Smith's husband was a U.S. representative, so she became first a U.S. representative for the state of Maine, and then she went on to be a senator. And she's probably most remembered nowadays for um, delivering this very fiery denunciation of McCarthyism on the Senate floor. It was called the Declaration of Conscience, and it's a really it was a big moment. And um, yeah, I'm a Margaret Chase Smith fan. A lot of people know of Susan Collins. Susan Collins is very much in the Margaret Chase Smith mold. I mean, I think she would be happy to say that actually and and margaret chase smith was very much an independent and someone who liked to cross the aisle and do bipartisan things and this is all kind of wrapped up in the in the character of dorothy gibson in my book so just for that alone i wanted to set her in maine because i think maine either truthfully or not likes to think of itself as the switzerland of the united states a little bit and and at least have this independent spirit when it comes to politics so it felt right to keep her, to put her in Maine. Um, I have also been to Maine a number of times. I did a lot of summers. I, I, uh, I live in Los Angeles, but I grew up in the New York area, and my family went up to Maine uh, many summers, and I just have really fond memories of it, uh, and it's really beautiful. And I set the book in the woods of Maine, which felt like an evocative setting for a mystery, but one that I, that I remember then, and that I knew uh, from Maine specifically. Right. Well, it's a good place if you want to isolate people or do yes. sort of a country house murder. Yes. You know, I, I really thought I was in college when Margaret Chase Smith made that space. Um, my oh, father wow. and I had one of the worst fights, maybe the only fight we ever had, which was that I was protesting Hewick on the courthouse steps in San Francisco. Um, I went to Stanford in the mid-50s, and it was a very different California than it is now, mm -hmm. very conservative. And we got washed down the steps of the courthouse huh. by the fire department breaking up our demonstration, and my father was so angry with me. <laughs> I didn't send you to college, you know, to become a political Democrat, whatever. Um, but, you know, because I grew up in Illinois, McCarthy was a very big presence because uh, you know, he was right next door in Wisconsin. Um, that was a terrible time. And, you know, it took, um, any, you see the movie, the, what's it called, The Blacklist? I think it was called The Blacklist, a very powerful movie about um, people who were affected by McCarthy. In fact, if you, if you watched um, Oppenheimer, you would have seen, too, mm -hmm. you know, the effect that that had. I thought it was an amazing movie, and I, I would never have thought that, I didn't even realize it was Robert Downey Jr. <laughs> you know, he oh, was so he good was so in good. that role, yeah, and I really thought, was. you know, he, he kept looking vaguely familiar to me, <laughs> but he was so out of context yeah. from Batman, yeah. you know, that I, I had a little trouble working it out, but I did think um, it really portrayed uh, not just the moral ambivalence of what they were doing, but the whole McCarthy aftermath, you know, was... Yeah. Um, tremendous. But your book is today, so you're yes. not dealing with all that. No. Yes. I mean, that's the, <laughs> I mean, it's funny that the, the, I feel like two thirds of this conversation has been political, which is, which is really, yeah, which I have no problem with that. I mean, I, I'm a political junkie. 
Uh, and I don't know. What, is it you or is it me? It must be me. I, <laughs> I think I'm at least encouraging you. I'm, I'm no, <laughs> it was all his fault. <laughs> he started true. us off in Washington. <laughs> That's right. But actually, this is very. This is a very. I think the busybody. The first place is a great title. Second thing, one of the things I love the most about it is you have a discussion at one point about um, detectives of the golden age. And I, I don't remember the quote exactly, uh -huh. but sort of to the effect that Sherlock Holmes and I think it was Poirot had sidekicks, you know, and the sidekicks weren't necessarily always up to speed or, you know, they were there as kind of... But, you know, you went on to say, but not Miss Marple. Miss Marple worked alone. <laughs> and, you know, I have suggested that to like five people now as a title for a book. In fact, Benjamin Stevenson, who I talked to earlier today, Miss <laughs> Marple works alone, I think is brilliant. <laughs> Are you thinking of writing a book like that? Uh, now that I've mentioned <laughs> it. <laughs> maybe, maybe so. Maybe I am. Just a great insight, and you know, I'd forgotten about the fact that Miss Marple, in fact, really did work alone as she, compared to Poirot. She absolutely does. Well, and the, what I love about when I'm on the when I have guests on the podcast, I always make them answer as the final question: "Gun to your head, you cannot, you know, weasel out of this uh, choice, Poirot or Marple, because so many people don't want to choose." And but I think if forced to choose, people always can make a choice and sort of back it up. And I'm Marple all the way. But I think that the Marple stories are more internal and they often rely more on sort of uh, an understanding of human nature and instinct. And they're not very investigative, actually. And they have few clues, which is why she lays traps at the end of them. Those also, are those two threads of detective fiction. Is it deductive or is it inductive? Mm. And Fyro is a is a classic of the deductive mm -hmm. school. And Miss Marple is an exemplar inductive. of the inductive school. Yeah. And the reason that I would choose Marple is that Murder at the Vicarage is one of the funniest. It, it is her, I think, funniest book. I say that that is my, even though our top-ranked Christie novel is not the Murder at the Vicarage. No, I mentioned that, but it really but is. But my a favorite Christie, I say, the one I have the most affection for is the Murder at the Vicarage. Look at and, that. Um, there was a, I continue, we're going to talk about everything but the busybody. <laughs> I just resigned myself here. But um, <laughs> there was a very interesting book that came out last year called Marple, um, which yes. I'm sure you know about. Oh, and yes. various contemporary writers were, uh, who agreed to participate were to write uh, Miss Marple, an updated Miss mm -hmm. Marple. I guess it didn't even have to be updated, a new Miss Marple story. Mm -hmm. And some of them were wonderful. I never thought the Miss Marple in New York was going to work, for example, but it, it really did. did. Mm -hmm. Sophie, I think, wrote a story in it. Or she, did no, she, she edit it? Maybe she was the... Um, I don't think she was directly involved in it, but because she, cause she mm -hmm. does all the, all the Poirot right. uh, continuation. But it was... Um, I I was surprised by how much I liked it, and I yeah, the reason I liked it is that to me it felt like an exercise in possibility. Where you, as you're reading through the collection, it's like, oh wow, let's see what direction this writer who I know of, you know, yeah. is going to go in, and it just it felt like this joyous exercise among people who all liked Miss Marple enough that they wanted to sit down and do and spend their time when they could have been writing their own stuff and and right. write this short story. And um, I, I was actually really surprised by how much I loved it because all of the stories were as, as different as they are. It, it is a mixed bag, and I didn't love all of them, but I loved, I loved the variety. So, um, wasn't it was it Val who rewrote Murder at the Vicarage? Yes, uh, yeah. with the um, so she wrote with the narrative voice 
of uh, of of Leonard Clement, the the vicar, the vicar, and, and not which, the vicar's wife. And right. she is though, but but I mean, he is one of my favorite narrators. I mean, that's what that's one of the reasons that I love the murder at the vicarage as much as I do. And I think I gasped when I started that story because yeah. I was like, oh, I think it's called the second murder at the vicarage. Yes, um, that's that was one of my favorites actually. Right. So yeah. we're in. I'm going to come back to your book. I promise. <laughs> All right. So we're in Maine, and yes. we have a senator, but the um, leads investigator in this book is a ghostwriter and I, I you know ghostwriters have suddenly come out I don't know if you all know there was um, wasn't it there was some sort of a small convention of ghostwriters recently and there was a New York Times article yeah. it came out with the day that this book came out I said how wonderful the New York Times yeah. to you know. but I mean it, it used to be <laughs> that ghostwriting was a really um, it was almost like the you know a non um, non-disclosure, you know, mm -hmm. an NDA agreement if you were a ghostwriter. And gradually, um, it's become more standard practice to acknowledge it has. And I think a co-author. And there's a difference between a ghostwriter and a co-author. What would you say that is? Well, I mean, the, the the easiest way, I think, to define that difference is if their name is on the cover. And sometimes their name really is on the cover, where it says written by whoever supposedly wrote the book and then the actual person who wrote the book if they're on the cover but other times I think there's a push now toward especially in these high-end scenarios um, Demi Moore's book was one of the ones that changed it because it was Ariel Levy who writes for the New Yorker who wrote her book and the book was excellent I mean it was really it was well written but it also felt like it was written by Demi Moore I mean not that how would I be able to judge that but I kind of did as I was reading it and I was I, I, I was fascinated by it. And then I think even more significant, significantly, and this is where you run into issues when you're a reader, because I've never said his name out loud, but J.R. Moringer, Moringer, I'm not sure how to pronounce his last name, but he wrote the Andre Agassi memoir, and then he also wrote Spare, the Prince Harry memoir. And he wrote a New Yorker article about ghostwriting. And he talked about, and he really waxed poetic about the art of ghostwriting, so much so that I actually read that article and I was still doing edits on this book and I changed a couple of things that I wrote about ghostwriting in the book because I was so inspired by him. So, um, yeah, I mean, I guess I, I picked a good time, I think, to to choose a ghostwriter. I, by the way, I actually define my ghostwriter in this series. She's the She is the sidekick to Dorothy Gibson, who is sort of my amateur detective, because I'm calling this a sidekick series. It's the first in three books. And in the, uh, at least three books, three books at minimum. And in the second book, she teams up with an entirely different detective in a different setting. So it's as if you're following this first-person sidekick narrator, a la Hastings or Watson, but then they're pairing up with a right, different detective in a different book. which led you to make that remark about Poirot and Holmes working exactly. with, yes. And She's Ms. very Mar aware of Ms. her Ms. sidekick Marple status. Alone. We yes. come back to that, yes. which I just love. <laughs> I, you know, I... I th in, in the past, because there have been some really undercover um, ghostwriters for crime fiction. Um, Willie Shoemaker, for example, the jockey, was very seriously injured, and to make him some money, um, they put out a Willie Shoemaker, you know, detective series or something, but you know that he didn't write it. It was also true of Martina Navratilova, mm -hmm. uh, Betty Ford. I'm trying to remember, you know, um, and you had to be sort of credulous to think that suddenly they blossomed out, you know, and became um, skilled mystery writers. So right. you kind of, kind of knew. Um, well, even Nancy Drew, in the, I mean, the, the, the all the way back to those. Well, Jessica Fletcher is that I actually outed. I've never 
I've never forgotten this. We did an event up at the Cave Creek Library with um, a very nice man, and I'm I gone blank out. He said, Patrick, I've done this again. I can't remember his name. But anyway, um, Donald Bain. Thank you very much. Thank you, PK. <laughs> I knew you'd remember this. It's one of my favorite stories. So anyway, I went up to do this event for whatever reason at the Cave Creek Library, and Donald Bain and his wife were there. So the first thing that happened, you'll love this, the first thing that happened is that all the women trooping into the Cave Creek Library were in Pan Am stewardess outfits. They were in hats, pins, the whole bit. So I was like, what happened here? <laughs> and it turns out that Donald Bain's first book was Coffee, Tea, or Me, written under a pen name. And it was so successful, he wrote six more, <laughs> dedicated, I love this, nobody noticed it, everyone to himself. <laughs> so then, you know, we were there to talk about the Jessica Fletcher series, and uh, he, it was acknowledged that he was writing those. And people were sort of saying, you know, well, how does that work? Or, you know, is it really true that a lot of famous people have ghostwriters? And out of the blue, I said, well, you know, I said, here's an example. Margaret Truman, I said, you know, 22 Mysteries in, and I'm convinced there was a ghostwriter. And I looked over at him, and all the, dr all the color had just streamed <laughs> out of his face. And I said, oh, my God, I said, was it you? And he went, yes, but I'm not allowed to tell anybody. I will have to kill everyone in the room. But, I mean, he, so his entire writing career was written either under a pseudonym or as a ghostwriter, mm. and yet he was a very successful writer. Yeah. But I'm not sure today that 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 would happen in that way. Yeah. It's, I mean, the, I, the, the sort of the through line of that article in the New York Times was that, you know, the, the popular opinion seems to be shifting or changing a little bit. And I think people are, they, I think there's a public awareness of, well, of course, these people didn't write their own books. So I think you were thinking about it because you were always thinking about books, but maybe people accepted things at face oh, value a little I'm more. I'm sure people actually thought Margaret Truman had written her books. And now they know, well, that's not that. And, and they want to know what the real story is and what the story is behind Robert it. Robert Harris actually wrote a book, I think, called The Ghost Writer or The Ghost Whatever It Was, in which, um, you know, that was a, a whole subject matter. Anyway, um, I liked your, I'm never going to talk about your book. I'm convinced. <laughs> yes, did you have a question? Contracts usually renewed like two books at a time. You get a two book deal followed by two book deal followed by that, you know. So. But was it fixed at the first? Or was that? No, I started off with a two book deal with Double Day, then the next one was with Grove. But so no. Yeah, I've got 21 or something right now. Publishers don't very often want to just sign up a new author for one book. I mean, it's a big investment yeah. on their part in right. um, generally, but not always, because there are single book contracts. But very often, or if you have a great concept and you want to write like a trilogy or something, yeah. very often that's that's the way it, it works out. I really wanted it to do a series. It's a, it's a three-book minimum, basically. So I'm contracted for three. I would love to do more. But I'm sort of playing that game of how do I write a trilogy that would be satisfying 
uh, if that's it. So I'm, I'm figuring that out right now because I've actually written the second one already um, because it'll come out in a year's time. So everything has to be done so far in advance. So now I'm, I'm working on the third, but I would love if there are more. So your ghostwriter, whose name escapes me. Uh, her name escapes you because she doesn't have one. Oh, that's right. I remember writing it up. It was like Sarah Caldwell, where we never knew whether Hillary she was is. male or female. <laughs> right. She is She is a nameless first-person narrator, a la uh, Daphne du Maurier's Rebecca. And also just it felt, it felt organic and it felt uh, true to that character because she is withholding. She's enigmatic. She's a ghostwriter, um, and and these are mysteries. So it, it it worked for me in the book, and um, yeah, now I'm committed to that. <laughs> no, I thought I thought it was very successful, um, and the fact that she is a ghostwriter, she can move on to different place and different subject. Yes. Every book. She has the ability to go um, to, I think, put herself in a lot of different settings, and and I'm already running with that. I mean, in the in the second book, she's on a literary cruise. So this is one of the, you know, there. this too is, and, and what I also wanted to do, I mean, you, you can see how I'm taking a lot of real life events um, and inserting them into a mystery in the busybody, and Christy did that a lot, actually, um, and that was one way in which I was inspired by her. It was one of the many homages to Christy that's built into the book, um, and in this in the second book, by placing it in, in a literary cruise, I think there's all, all these literary experiences that people sign up for now, uh, you know, the Ellen Hildebrand, and then also these cruises you can take down various rivers in Europe uh, with Cheryl Strayed and Gillian Flynn. I supply books for Diana Gabaldon's April trip down with Avalon, for example, because we're, you know, do Outlander. And I loved it because at the end they said, and you'll need to ship them to Budapest. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I wrote to the publisher said, let's discuss how we want to do this. But yeah. Yeah, you're right. But it just is a wor yeah, working writer, um, you know, can can go to a lot of different places and, and but be it's a genius series design because what happens is, you know, the whole uh, Jessica Fletcher back to her, the whole kind of Cabot Crove, Cove thing where, you know, she was decimating the population of this <laughs> small town because the charm of the series for readers was that she was there and in Cabot Cove. But if you design a series like you have with a ghostwriter and she can move on to a different subject in a different location, you get to keep the series identity, but you're always keeping it fresh by yeah. being somewhere else. So that's it's a great design. That's the plan. Thank you. That's the plan. You're welcome. So um, she arrives, our ghostwriter, um, somewhat reluctantly, if I recall. She didn't just jump at this opportunity to go and write for the senator. Well, she's. I mean, she knows that it's a big opportunity because this is such a high-profile memoir and she specializes in celebrity memoir um so I, I think she's surprised actually by how well she clicks yeah. with dorothy and and they really are a team very very quickly and they get to work on the memoir and then a couple of days into work um they go to a liquor store <laughs> they make a run to a liquor store for some red wine uh, as one does and they uh are they're there at the liquor store they meet this woman named vivian davis who lives in the area she's a total stranger to dorothy but people come up to dorothy gibson all the time especially in the wake of the election um and this woman talks about how upset she is that 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 dorothy lost and you know she's worried about what's going to happen now that the man who won will become president because this is set during that period between election and inauguration so we're at the end of november beginning of december um, and she's rather annoying, uh, and they, they sort of brush her off. But then a couple of days later, they learn that this woman has died seemingly by her own hand. She's found drowned in her bathtub with a bottle of sleeping pills by her side. 
um, and something about this doesn't sit right with Dorothy. So she drags her ghostwriter uh, to a, the memorial for this woman, where they interact with a very weird and hopefully intriguing set of characters, all of whom were staying at the house where this woman died, including her husband and her sister and a bunch of people. And afterward, um, Dorothy actually speeds along the toxicology report, both out of curiosity and in an effort to be helpful, because people are really wondering, you know, they want to be able to just confirm that this is what it seems to have been on the surface. Um, and that was my way of getting past the issue that I think, you know, uh, many a mystery aficionado uh, finds annoying, which is when the tox report takes like two seconds to come back in a Law and Order episode, which is just so <laughs> completely, you know, ridiculous. Um, so she used she wields her local influence to goose along the tox report, and when it comes back, lo and behold, there there's not a single drug in this woman's body, and so from there. But given the fact that Dorothy Gibson, who just lost the presidential election in this very public way, has now become embroiled in a murder investigation, it kind of becomes a cause celeb, and the police are up in arms about it, and and from there, uh, the investigation plays out in a very hopefully classic puzzle mystery sort of a way with clues so that the reader can actually figure out who done it um, either before or at the same time as Dorothy and her ghostwriter yeah, do. Yeah, it's a really nifty investigation. If I recall, the annoying woman had a social media moment. Didn't she want to have a, a selfie or whatever it was with Dorothy? And yes. that's, that's what the problem is that, that Dorothy was the problem. is. She took a selfie with Dorothy. Right. And so then after she dies, obviously this becomes, you know, the photo just propagates everywhere. And she's just sort of embroiled in it. People start wondering openly if she had anything to do with it. Or perhaps this woman, you know, died by suicide because of how upset she was over what happened with the election. It's, yes, I mean, she, she just sort of gets involved um, in a way that I think is believable, given how these things play out oh, nowadays on social media. I couldn't help but think about AI, you know, and I read that and mm -hmm. thinking that, in fact, you know, there was some chance it, down the road that a fake photo could have been. This is a real one. Well, they even I have a moment built into the into the book where her her assistant, who's also a character, comes in and says, is this a real photo? And the ghostwriter realizes in that moment, oh, there must be so many fake uh, you know, sort of AI photos that come up, but she confirmed. She said, "Yes, it actually is a real photo because we were in the liquor store." And she, and, you know, she asked to take a selfie, and I said, "Yes." So, um, yeah, so I'm basically, sure that you all forecast the, time. the current Taylor Swift thing about you know Taylor Swift <laughs> the deep being, fakes. Yeah, oh, they've been going on for a while. Whatever it is, now the poor woman's going to be subjected to all kinds of criticism if she decides to fly back from Japan <laughs> to go to the Super Bowl, which is actually nobody's business but our own. Um, how did you deal with um, with the uh, suicide. You have the same problem, don't you? In in um, that, that you need a tox report to discover whether this young man that dies, or well, I don't remember how he died, so maybe not. Well, yeah, you're okay. Well, in, in well in this particular book, what happens is the you know the guy's found dead, and he's got a, a tourniquet wrapped around his arm and a needle dangling from it, and drugs in the drawer. So nobody was too confused on it being drugs involved. But then, then the question becomes, well, would he do that himself or not? And so there was no need for a complicated tax report or anything. That, How know. clever. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Disarm the tax report. Right. <laughs> I, I remember it was an overdose. Yeah. But um, but you're right. I mean, you know, Kathy Rice has been here many, many times. We've had many, many discussions about how unrealistic the speed with which DNA or, um, you know, tax reports or anything else can come back. Yeah. A real investigation is usually any of you watching the Gilbert Goon thing unfold, um, the Gilbert Goon's. 
a local story that is interesting, yeah. uh, will recognize that police investigations can take, you know, forever. Mm-hmm. I, I mean, we, we all want these things to be fast and kind of need them to, but that's the case, I think, in, in, in every genre. I mean, I, I actually went to law school um, before I became a writer, and any legal show, I mean, the way that those trials and the investigation into it and the it's all just so compressed. But what, what would you want? Would you, if you want it to play out the way it actually plays out, it's going to be boring. <laughs> it's going to not not be dramatic. So, you know, I, I think we're we're fine messing with verisimilitude. Oh, yeah. No, no, no. You have to read readers expectations, definitely, and pick yeah. up the pace. So I really like Dorothy. I thought she was a great character. Thank you. Far more like Margaret Chase Smith than anybody else. Um, <laughs> She was terrific. So you're going to be faced in the second book. You've already written it. You're going to have to come up with somebody like Dorothy. I mean, somebody is interesting and, you know, able to get. I don't. I mean, there's no reason to spoil it just by talking about it. But I, I think that, you know, it must be looking ahead. It would be really fun for you to have to do the subject of the ghostwriting every book. Is that going to be your largest, uh, you know, creative act so to speak yeah it will i mean the second book is a little it's it's a slight departure from ghostwriting per se because what she's what she basically does is that she's boarding this literary cruise a little bit under duress because she needs to make money and there are different writers who are uh conducting lectures essentially for these passengers who are just very avid readers who want to go on this this cruise um in in different genres so her so her genre actually then is mystery uh, there's a YA writer, there's a romance writer, and this is also a way for me to talk about the different genres of writing and, and, and differences, similarities, different approaches. Um, and there's the the woman who is sort of running the whole thing is a little bit of a mashup of Elizabeth Gilbert and Glennon Doyle, and even Rachel Hollis, actually, if, if any of that rings a bell for anyone. But um, And that's a little bit of this figure of the 21st century author who is so connected to her audience. She's a podcaster as well, and she's just very much, she's very interactive in a way that I think writers sometimes are expected to be and aren't always good at, but she's really good at it, and the ghostwriter is really not good at that, which won't surprise you if you've, if you've read this, but, and they have a lot of history together. So it, it, it's a lot about friendship and writing, and um, yeah, I'm, but given that she's a writer, I'm, and I'm certainly going to go back to the ghostwriting well. I'm, already, I'm doing that in the third one um, in terms of... Uh, pairing up with someone and working on a project and um, and then hopefully more beyond that. So if you're on a cruise, it's basically a lock ship mystery. It is, yes. And this is, you know... Very Christie. Death on know. the Nile. Yeah. Yeah. I, or, you know, any number of her, of her sort of... It's a, it's a great setting for for a mystery, and I, and I really wanted to do that. I think it's a great idea. I did a conversation earlier today with an author who has a locked train mystery. He puts his writers huh. on a train and right. sends them across Australia, a luxury train, you know, so that it's basically like a cruise ship, but it's on rails. And, you know, I, I, I always, Christie's almost a shorthand, you know, for not, not a locked room, but a country house in a which... A closed circle. Exactly. You know, so it isn't really a locked ship mystery. It's um, a closed circle it's mystery. A, it's a closed you circle, can't, yeah. You know, unless you dive overboard or whatever, you can't get off the ship. So the only people who can actually be part of the crime are the people on the ship. I um, When I first started the podcast, I was using those two terms interchangeably. They're wrong. And that's wrong. Right. Because a locked room is very, a locked room is usually closed circle, but it's very specific where it's the impossible crime. And that's like John Dixon Carr really made a career out of that. Christie does it like five times. 
out of that. She actually didn't do it very often. Urkuparo's Christmas is a great example of a locked room in murder in Mesopotamia. But yes, but but she was she was a master of the closed circle that she she used not all the time either, but but quite often. And um, those are some of my favorite mysteries, the that closed circles. Be, you know, a Christie, a basic Christie is a why done it. I'm sorry. Uh, yeah, a why done it. Who is the motive in the whole bit? A Laguru mystery is really a how done how it. Done it yeah. you, you read it, you know, to see if you can figure out ahead of the author revealing to you how the guy died, you know, in a in a closed room with a barred chimney and you know the shutters fastened and all the rest of it. <coughs> so it's it's actually more of a revelation most of the time than it is a detection. Yeah, no, it's true. And and good luck with Carr, for example. I mean, his solutions are like Rube. It's like getting a, a instructional manual to a Rube Goldberg machine, where it's like, and then they did this, and then you're just like, it's it's his mind was amazing. <laughs> Hill wrote one one time, and it was wonderful. But anyway, you're right. People do use them interchangeably, and they call, and then they were not a locked room mystery, it's but not. but it's not yeah, right. So, um, questions from the audience? Anybody like to add? A no, avoid politics. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry about that. Right. It's sort of hard to at the moment, but I should be more disciplined. Right. So. Patrick, are there any questions from the audience who wish that I hadn't gone that direction? Oh, definitely. Um, so I I very formally revisited one title in particular because it was one of our lowest ranked titles. It was The Secret of Chimneys, which is not a very well-known Christie. Um, and Catherine and I had ranked it extremely low. It was for a long time our, our lowest ranked title, and it had a lot of fans. So I finally revisited it, revisited it and bumped it up a number of titles. But I was actually just talking about this with someone else. There are there are certain titles that we would read, and these were all rereads for us because we had read them before, but we would read it and either be critical of it in, in the first flush of our response, and then in the months following realize, oh, no, that was actually really good. That was much better than we gave it credit for, or the opposite. And um, the, the one title that I think we were overly critical of, two titles that come to mind we were overly critical of in the moment were Death on the Nile and Evil, uh, Evil Under the Sun, actually both of which are two of Christie's very best novels. Um, and Sparkling Cyanide was the rare Christie that Catherine and I were in raptures over when we first read it. And it is good. It's, it's, it's somewhere in the middle of the rankings, but it really faded uh, over time for us. So Did you include the Tommy too. and Tuppence? Oh, yes. Yeah. I have a lot. And uh, before the podcast ranking project, I would have said, Ugh, I, I'm not a fan of Tommy and Tuppence. And they're, they're certainly not the best of the Christie's, but... I have I have affection for them now actually and they're they're so different she's doing something completely different there since they age um unlike Poirot and Marple though Miss Marple actually does age also but um yeah that that that's just sort of a a different animal so I think you have to approach it a little bit differently but I I I like Tommy and Tuppence so I have to say I had to do a deep dive into Christie for a Bloomsbury academic book that Sophie it, I actually is one of the contributors. Uh -huh. My favorite Christie is Come Tell Me How You Live, mm -hmm. followed by her autobiography. And um, they're both autobiography. Yeah. And I think they're wonderful. But then, then I love this. I found Max Mallowan's memoir, 
of you know of his life with mm -hmm. Agatha Christie, Mellon's which it turned out I had my library and forgot about. And it was really interesting to read his version of "Come Tell Me How You Live," and you know, so I reread them both to write up this thing. And um, it was like dual narrators, you know, dual points of view. It was really fascinating. I've actually I have the Mellon's mem memoirs on my bookshelf, and I haven't cracked it. I will I will shout out of what I'm curr I'm currently reading another memoir having to do with Agatha Christie, because um, I do a little side project for the podcast on on Patreon. So we cover sort of out-of-the-way things there. And I'm reading a memoir by Hubert Gregg, who directed, I believe, six Christie plays, including The Mousetrap, for a long time. And it's called Agatha Christie and All That Mousetrap, which is, <laughs> it, it's, and it is the cheekiest book I've ever read. He is so wicked to Agatha Christie and just in general in this book. It's, it's not totally nasty. It's like just winking enough that it's not unpleasant, but it's really entertaining. And even the title, what he's doing is the Cockney slang where they rhyme words because what that title really means is Agatha Christie and all that crap and um, it's it's just a really fun it's 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 fun to read a little bit of a, a slightly nasty memoir and most people don't write about Agatha Christie that way either her family was not happy when that book came out it came out after she passed away but I'm having fun uh, reading that right now um, anything else anybody would like to say or at all I don't think anybody did <laughs> all right. Well, thank you very much for coming out this evening. Uh, how about how about you, Mike? Is there anything that you would like to say or add? Oh, no, I don't think so. I'm, I, I know several of the people here, and I was just uh, surprised they showed up. And because uh, because being down here wasn't expected, and it was very nice of you to invite me to the store. And uh, so it uh, it was a pleasure. So all right. So if you're still playing golf with them, you probably. <laughs> Well, right. I, I am. That's why I came down here was to go play golf. And that, uh, Wonderful. I, I don't know if you remember, the, the the first time I was at this store, it was I was booked to be here kind of like you were, and you called me up and said, well, would you mind showing up with Lisa Gardner? I said, well, geez, of course not. And I, I go up there, and there's 100 people in line to see Lisa Gardner, and there might be three to see me, but I always decided if I want to be reincarnated, I want to be reincarnated as her. <laughs> She's probably 10 years younger than me and looks 20 years younger, but basically her story was I started writing at 18, and I had a bestseller when I was 20. That's all I've ever done all my life is write. And my story is I start writing when I'm 55 years old, you know, so that, that, that's who I always wanted to be was Lisa Gardner. <laughs> Thanks to you inviting me here. <laughs> A pleasure. Lisa's wonderful. She'll be here on March 12th, if I recall, right? Yep. Um, right. Well, in that case, thank you all very much for coming, and thank you, virtual audience. If you'd like to Thanks. get a book signed by either author, you're certainly welcome to do that. Thank you, too. Thank you so much. Hello. We hope you're enjoying our programs and podcasts with authors. We'd like to expand them, and your help would be appreciated. Please make a donation at poisonedpenfoundation.org. 100% of the proceeds will go to help connect authors with readers in this difficult time. Thank you.